We tried to uh, treat our clients as individuals and to rate the importance of their case, not necessarily on the monetary amount involved, but with the recognition that every client has a right to the undivided attention of a lawyer to his case. It's not only effecting change, but it is preserving rights. Now, you can have all the outstanding lawyers that you want, but if the poor people don't have access to them, that is, don't have the money to pay the fee, and there's no one else to pay it, then those people simply do not have the opportunity to enjoy those rights. All rise. All rise. The Honorable Chief Justice and, and Associate, Associate Justices, Justices of the Supreme Court of New York, State of North Carolina. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North All Carolina. All of has our citizens across the state depend upon us to uphold and protect both the spirit and the letter of the law, and to always apply the law fairly and impartially to every litigant who comes before this court. God save the state and this honorable court. Hello and welcome to All Things Judicial, a podcast of the North Carolina Judicial Branch. I'm Chris Mears with the Judicial Branch Communications Office. In today's episode, we listen to a 2006 interview with attorney Walter F. Brinkley, Jr., who was a co-founder of the North Carolina Legal Services Corporation and was counsel in a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, which desegregated the UNC School of Law. In the interview, Brinkley shares how his career was inspired by his father's representation of an African-American tenant farmer before an all-white jury, and Brinkley reminds lawyers that they have a duty of public service because of their unique position as members of the bar. The interview is part of the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism's historical video series and was conducted by attorney Hank Van Hoy, who speaks first in the interview. Stay with us as we keep all things judicial. Mr. Brinkley, if you would, we were talking this morning about what it means to be a lawyer in North Carolina and what a privilege it is. Tell us your views about that. Well, I've always had the view that a license to practice law in North Carolina was not actually a license. Actually, it should be considered a privilege because the members of the North Carolina Bar are really operating as a monopoly in some respects. We are uh, protected from competition and given the opportunity to serve in that capacity. And because of that, I think the members of the bar have a duty to repay the public by offering public service in various forms. 
and lawyers are particularly equipped to offer that service in areas of government, in areas of civic endeavor, and in other areas where their training provides them with the resources to contribute. Do you think that lawyers today are fulfilling that obligation to the extent that, in your view, they should? I don't want to be critical of the bar as a whole or of any particular lawyer, but I think over the years uh, the participation of lawyers in public service has deteriorated to a significant extent, and I think that more emphasis needs to be put on that aspect of their overall practice. Well, let's come back to that in a moment and talk now about your early life, the things that led you to become a lawyer. You were born on the cusp of the Great Depression and the son of a lawyer. Tell us about the early experiences of living in Lexington, North Carolina. Well, I, I grew up in Lexington, a small town, a population of about 10,000 back then. The middle of the Depression, which had had a significant effect on the life of practically everyone. My father was a small-town lawyer. I had the highest respect for him, thought he was the best lawyer there was and still do. But <clears throat> it was a great experience because we had the camaraderie of uh, that really comes when living in a small community where everyone knows everybody else. And during a time of economic depression, I think people had more empathy for their friends and neighbors, and there were, there was a more cohesive atmosphere than we find now. Do you think those experiences uh, affected your goals and, and your attitude about the practice of law and, and working together to solve problems? I think they definitely did. Uh, I <clears throat> had the opportunity of being around my father's office from time to time and of hearing him at home discuss the uh, problems that he had and the situations that existed among local people. And it gave me a feeling that a lawyer could actually be a very significant part of a community other than simply appearing in court or trying cases. Was there a time in your youth when, when you felt that um, the course of following in your father's footsteps was open to you? Yes, I had one experience that was particularly significant. When I was about 11 years old, this was 1937, the depths of the Depression, I remember one day my father came home to lunch and after we'd finished he asked me if I would like to ride over to Davie County with him. He was going to try a case there that afternoon. I particularly, didn't particularly want to go, I'd rather play baseball, but I did go and found myself in court with him. And he was representing a black uh, tenant farmer who was accused of stealing his white neighbor's chickens. And I can still see that courtroom that was filled with white faces except for a few black faces up in the balcony. 
and all the officials were white, and all the jurors were white, and I thought about my father's task as he went about defending a black man under those circumstances. And I was so impressed with his dedication and determination that I decided right then that what I wanted to do was to be a lawyer. How profound was the feeling of injustice that you felt from that trial and the circumstances of an all-white courtroom, all-white judges, personnel, and so forth? Well, Upon even at that tender age, I had the ability to see that the cards were stacked against that defendant. And that was, I think, the thing that impressed me the most, that my dad would go in against insurmountable odds and fight as vigorously as he did to try to bring about some justice to this defendant. And as you served in the Navy during World War II and then went on to get your law degree in 1949. Uh, you began your career as a staff attorney with the uh, North Carolina Attorney General's Office. Tell us about that experience and, and how it benefited you. Well, it was probably the best thing that happened to me as far as my legal career is concerned because at a very early point, I was given the opportunity to participate in trials, in hearings, uh, in a lot of other phases of the practice of law. And I was given the opportunity to become associated with, or at least have an opportunity to observe very closely some of the leading lawyers in North Carolina and to be involved in some of the uh, most important cases. For instance, the uh, lawsuit against the University of North Carolina to desegregate its law school was started while I was there, and I had the opportunity to work as counsel in that case all the way from the trial stage up through the final appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. I was able to uh, participate in probably 20 appeals of criminal cases to the Supreme Court of North Carolina. And as a result of that, I developed a confidence that the lawyers on the other side, regardless of their status or reputation, were really no better than I was with equal preparation. And that has helped me a great deal throughout my years of practice. After you left the Attorney General's office and, and went back on active duty, you came back in the Navy, then you came back to your hometown in Lexington to begin the private practice of law. Tell us about these early years. Well, they were, to say the least, a little bit difficult, as it would be for anyone who's starting in something that's relatively new. I had a very general practice. Our philosophy, I think, was that we would accept any client who walked through the door. We didn't always place prime importance on the ability of that client to compensate us. We tried to 
uh, treat our clients as individuals and to rate the importance of their case, not necessarily on the monetary amount involved, but with the recognition that every client has a right to the undivided attention of a lawyer to his case. I'm impressed by one of your comments about this the small town, small firm culture of a, a sense of a duty of a lawyer in a law firm to render legal services to all the citizens of the community. Uh, has that culture changed over time? I think it, well, most things of that type have changed. My memory of the local bar is on a hot uh, summer afternoon, the lawyers would tend to gather around a telephone pole behind the courthouse and engage in general conversation, and before long there would be a group of 10 to 15 lawyers standing around talking. Now that wasn't a regular thing, but it illustrated the companionship and the collegiality of the bar. There was, there was a unity there, and if a lawyer needed help, uh, his brothers at the bar were anxious to give it to him, whether it was financial assistance in an emergency or whether he was in a case and he had a problem and he needed some help solving it. I don't think you find that sort of uh, thing going on now largely because, for one thing, it's very seldom that the lawyers are grouped around the courthouse as they were formerly. But um, I also think that maybe there's less regard for the need for civil and criminal assistance in cases to people who are indigent. I see a, a, a common thread in your character from your early experiences growing up the son of a lawyer in a small town on the, during the Depression, through the war and the issues of uh, discrimination and segregation and lack of access to the system, of the ability of a lawyer to affect profound change in our society and our culture. How do you see those opportunities, and what do you think are the obligations of lawyers to affect change? Well, I think <clears throat> that lawyers have an obligation that perhaps extends beyond that. Um, it's not only effecting change, but it is preserving rights and making sure that people have the opportunity to enjoy the rights to which they are entitled when they cannot enjoy those rights unless they have someone to represent them who is trained in the law and in the process through which it works and someone who is available to them. Now, you can have all the outstanding lawyers that you want but if the poor people don't have access to them, 
that is, don't have the money to pay the fee, and there's no one else to pay it, then those people simply do not have the opportunity to enjoy those rights. Well, now that you're into two-thirds of the sixth decade of your practice, what are the other concerns that you have about the profession as we now seem to be? Well, <clears throat> one concern is that we are moving so rapidly toward the large firm concept. Now this uh, may not be as true in smaller towns and rural areas such as Lexington, but in the larger areas, when I started practicing, uh, they, you would rarely find a law firm anywhere in North Carolina with more than four or five partners. In fact, I can't think of one. Back in 1950, we'll say, it had that more than that. Now, law firms with more than 100 lawyers are certainly not uncommon. Uh, law firms with 20 to 50 lawyers are just routine. And although that is a good thing, in my opinion, because it provides an opportunity for specialization, it's not so good when it reduces the role of the generalist and tends to sort of fragment the profession. Do you see the billable hour as increasing the tension of lawyers to become work addicts and diminishes collegiality uh, as an important offshoot? Oh, I definitely do. I know there are firms that uh, uh, judge the performance of their lawyers on the number of billable hours they put in, which is a way of measuring the dedication of the lawyer to his task. But on the other hand, if you are going to give primary credit for the amount of time that the lawyer spends that can be charged to the client, then obviously there's going to be less time for that lawyer to devote to public service, public interest, and to other things that need to be stressed. What are some of the other changes you've seen, particularly with the change in the makeup of the profession? Well, <clears throat> I think probably the, one of the main ones is the increased diversity. Uh, we have more women practicing. You know, when I started, when I was in law school, had a law school class of 120, we had three women. Uh, now, law schools are majority of the students in some places are women, which is a good development. I, I'm not being critical of it. I think women, uh, on the whole, make excellent lawyers. I think there are some problems there that need to be continually address such as developing a flexibility in the work schedule that will enable women to be good lawyers without uh, sacrificing their role as wives and mothers and members of a family. We have a greatly increased uh, ratio uh, from a racial standpoint now. 
But I think, again, that has been an excellent development, and I, I see that continuing. Uh, there are other changes, but those are two of the ones that come to mind immediately. One of the important aspects of your career is that you were selected to be president of the North Carolina Bar Association and served in that capacity from 1974 through 1975. Uh, tell us about that service and, and what it has meant to you. Well, the main thing that it has meant to me is, has been the development of friendships with lawyers all over the state, uh, practicing in every field, and with so many varied social and economic backgrounds. And the thing that it has convinced me of is that lawyers are about the best group of people that uh, you can find. It's just a good, good group of people to have as friends. Uh, another opportunity has been the chance to see what the state is really like and what the needs of the various localities are and to see how many diverse elements we have in the state but the unifying elements sort of bring us together again. Well to work for these improvements in the profession, uh, to serve in, in a leadership position with the bar, to serve for years and chair the board of law examiners, to serve as president of Legal Services of North Carolina Inc required you to give up a lot of time in your practice and therefore uh, required not only an economic sacrifice on your part but that of your firm. Why do you feel it was worth it to render that service? Well I'll be frank with you in the first place it was fun because as I said I was dealing with interesting enjoyable people but that the second reason is just what I have earlier said. I felt or feel that every lawyer has the obligation to contribute something for which he doesn't receive any direct compensation or remuneration. And I just elected to spend my extra time working in activities of the organized bar and in the legal aid area. Now, my partners may have felt that I spent more time than I should, but I enjoyed it, and that's my reason. As we um, come to a conclusion, I would like for you to talk a little first about um, the frustrations that you've had in the practice of law and in the profession and with the profession, and then to talk about the sense of accomplishment and purpose, both personally and of the profession. In this country, we have philosophical differences, political differences, and, and there's a certain amount of tension involved in practically every activity in which we engage. And we have people who are extreme on one side and extreme on the other, and the rest of us fall somewhere in the middle. Uh, 
I'm inclined to be a little more toward the left. And there have been times when I was chagrined, disgusted, frustrated because the other side was not willing to move as fast as I was. But basically, that's something that has to be reckoned with and has to be accepted. And about all you can do is continue to work as hard as you can for the view that you think is best. And finally, are there any words of advice that you would give to the profession? I think if I were going to advise particularly a young lawyer, it would be to, number one, work hard. Because nothing supplies the result of hard work in preparing and in sticking by the rules and doing it the right way. Uh, on the converse, one other piece of advice was don't overdo it. We all have to live and do the things that we enjoy doing. And there are some people who get so dedicated to the practice of law that they eliminate the opportunity for that side of life. So if you can blend those two things in the right proportions, then I think success is available and is enjoyable. Thank you for listening to All Things Judicial, a podcast of the North Carolina Judicial Branch. You can find out more about the Judicial Branch by visiting nccourts.gov.